Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis, and I'm the host of the podcast. Now, this is the podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. Now, I am really excited about today's guest because this is the person that I want to be. So we have a tour player, a GBNI PGA professional and a PhD holder. So this is the person that I want to be. So I'm extremely excited to talk to this. So welcome to the show, Dr. Sue Shapcott. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> Thank you, Brent. That's quite an introduction. I don't think anyone's ever said that about me before. Oh, well, I, I can't see why they would not. I'm, I'm just, you are the person that I would want to be. You've got everything that I want and um, I'll be certainly going through um, your pathway to certainly hopefully get that PhD as well in the future. So tell everyone a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I now live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, as you can tell from my accent, that's not where I'm originally from. Um <laughs> I'm originally from the UK, uh, so in terms of my golf trajectory then, I started as an amateur golfer. I played for Great Britain and Ireland. I played Curtis Cup. I turned pro, played the European Tour, Asian Tour, um, a little bit in the States. And then through an injury, I retired. Um, I went through my PGA qualifications, and then through a mutual friend, I was introduced to Hank Haney, who was looking to recruit some instructors uh, for his facility in Dallas, Texas. So landed in the States in 2000, thought I'd spend a couple of years here and then go back to the UK. And here I am 20 years later. So after a few years of working with Hank, then I ended up going back to school, doing the research, the PhD um, route, and ended up here in Madison, where I partner with the city of Madison and we use golf instruction to try and uh, drive uh, golfers to the to the facilities here in in Madison. So there's heaps there to talk about and I can kind of see this might be turning into a two-parter but we'll see how we <laughs> how we go we, um, we'll, we'll see how we go with our chat we'll, we'll, we'll get through all that we can um, and then we'll possibly get you back for a second go at some stage in the future but the first question I want to ask as a, as a coach is mm-hmm. how did you've coming from a, from a tour player background? which is yep. um, isn't quite as common as what you, you as you might think, especially in Australia here. But how did you find that tour playing background impacts on your coaching now? Um, how does it impact now? Um, probably less now than it did when I first started coaching. Um, when I started coaching, like pretty much every other coach then, although I was a good golfer, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing from a coaching perspective. And so being able to lean on my playing credentials, um, you know, gave me a little bit of confidence, made me think that, you know, I would know what it was that I was doing. Um, So I did used to lean a lot on my um, playing experience to try and understand the people in front of me. Um, As I've become more expert as a coach, then to be honest, I I even forget that part of my life. Sometimes it just seems like so long ago, and, and, and I would say now it has very little impact um, on my coaching. So as a, as a player, um, and did you find that you could obviously coach the skills of how to, how to play golf but possibly didn't have those skills on how to get it across effectively or how to connect with those students? I- exactly. So um, 
to begin with, then, you know, I could, I could relate to them in terms of, um, you know, the, the technical aspects, the, um, performance aspect. But what I really lacked, what playing doesn't give you is, um, a framework to start thinking about how to give feedback, how to motivate people. I could draw on the things that worked for me from a motivational perspective, but, you know, they weren't really grounded in any, kind of knowledge um so yeah i really lacked the skills to communicate to motivate to support to um kind of get people connected to the game because those skills you don't necessarily use or need when you're playing on tour yeah, yeah, that, that that certainly makes sense. I'm curious because I know I fell into this trap as a as a as a young coach. Um, I found myself coaching the way that I was coached, so mm-hmm. I've, I found myself passing on information the way that I processed it. So mm-hmm. again, as a player, did you did you find yourself coaching players how you were coached? Absolutely, um, I absolutely did, and. Um the coach that I grew up with, a, a guy called Gordon Brand, an, an old Scottish golf pro, um, who was very old school. Um, and so probably it wasn't a great idea that I was going to pull on my experiences with him um, <laughs> in terms of trying to build my coaching business. Swearing at golfers probably doesn't do too much. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> Yeah. So again, I, th- I think um, I think it's important for coaches starting out to to really take on board that that understanding of being able to communicate with your students and not just coach the way that you were coached. I think that's um, that's really really cool. So um, we have to ask the question. It's obviously he's a very high profile man. Um, he's got his own podcast out there as well, and plenty of other things out there. What was it like working for Hank? It was absolutely fantastic um so i know that hank gets a little bit of a hard time particularly you know fairly recently with um his exodus from sirius radio but um my experience with him was um it was second to none in terms of um learning as a coach so when i when i landed with him in dallas texas then yes i had my pj qualifications i had played on tour, I thought I was pretty good at what I did. Um, when I went to work for Hank, then it was a um, you know a rude awakening of how much I still had to learn. Um, and you know, most people know Hank's pretty straightforward. He's pretty blunt. Um, before he would let me teach at his facility, then yeah, he wanted me to watch him teach. He wanted me to work with his um, some of the other coaches that he had there and you know I was getting slightly frustrated I was ready to go I wanted to go and teach I wanted to start building my business and at some point he said to me it's my name above the door I'll tell you when you're ready to coach and you know at the time I was you know slightly irritated but you know I I get it I I I realize that it's his reputation it's his golf school he's trying to do quality control and so you know it was right that he did make me wait and make me learn and then before I could go and teach then he would get um, one of his other instructors to come and watch you give a lesson just to you know make sure that you knew what you were doing and and it was a tough experience but it was a fantastic experience and the only thing I regret is that I didn't go and watch him teach more 
Um, you know, I, I watched him teach a lot, but I, if I could go back and do it over again, I would go and watch a whole lot more. And although he's most known for his work with high-profile players, obviously Tiger, um, then the lessons that I really enjoyed was watching him work with just average recreational golfers. I mean, he is just so good at making a plan for the lesson, knowing why the ball is doing what it's doing, and then changing what needs to be changed. And he's just, he's like a dog with a bone. He just keeps going at it until until he gets the player to change. And I mean, it was it was eye-opening. And I've got to be honest, when I did go to work for him, then, you know, like many young golfers, I I played tournament golf, I, um, you know, turned pro, I'd done my PGA qualifications, and I kind of fell into coaching. You know, it seemed like a, a pretty decent career choice, but I can't say that I was really passionate about it. But after about six months working with Hank, then, you know, he really ignited a passion in me, in me for coaching. Just to see someone so good at what they do, then, you know, it's like, I, I want to be that good. I want to be able to change people people's ball flight I want to be able to make a difference um in people's golf games so you know it was a it was a fantastic fantastic experience no that's that that's cool and I, I think it's easy to forget when you see those high profile coaches that they all started coaching club golfers they all they all didn't start off coaching the best players in the world so they all have those have those skills to be able to coach those those average players and get that change mm-hmm. in ball fight really quickly so it sounds like it was a pretty pretty cool experience it was it was and um you know met other great instructors who I'm still in touch with like um you know Aussie Dale Gray I don't know whether you know Dale, um, and uh, you know he—he's doing great stuff. Yeah. So, interested in the in the process of the of the of the training that you went through with with the Hankaney School. So, obviously, lots of observation, lots of giving coaching, and then reflecting on it, which obviously is pretty pretty high profile in coaching coaching science. Um, mm-hmm. So that obviously that was an, an important process. So, how much of that do you still do? Not as much as. I should, um, you know, I just get busy, which is a really poor excuse. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, when I'm driving home, when I'm thinking about my day, then, you know, I definitely still have that reflective process of, you know, what could I have done better? Would there have been a better way to either give feedback, make swing changes, interact with a group? Um, and, you know, without that, reflective element to it then I think it's really hard to keep improving as a coach because you know none of us ever do anything perfectly so we can always try and learn and do better next time but unless we have that reflective component to our to our practice of 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 teaching golf then you know we won't pick up on what it is that we can improve on yeah I would I would certainly encourage all coaches out there to have something in place where you can go through your, your own coaching at certain times just to see the areas that uh, possibly aren't as strong as others and you can you can certainly improve it that way and I, I encourage all, all all young coaches to observe different coaches I did that plenty of time coming through I'm a bit the same way I don't do it as much now as I should but it's um, it's important to see how good coaches go about it you certainly pick up some 
pick up some strategies uh, yeah, for you your do. own coaching by doing that. So mm-hmm. it's really cool. So research, this is where I'm, I'm keen to go because this is obviously my area my area of interest um, and you've you've gone down this pathway. So uh, talk to us about what piqued that interest in that research pathway to start with. Yeah, so – as I said, I was, you know, working for Hank, doing pretty well. I was getting better and better as a technical coach um, and realized that, you know, my business would have, you know, a good amount of people coming in for golf lessons, um, but also not a great retention rate. So we would get them in, teach them a few hours of instruction, and then, some of them would stick around, some of them some of them wouldn't. So I was trying to figure out what is it that I can do better to retain more new golfers who are coming in. Um, and I really didn't know kind of what I should be doing. So that was the initial um, trigger in terms of um, how I started to uh, to do to do research. And just as a side note, then it it was a really long slog um for for more reasons than than you would think so i had left school at 15 um like many people do in the uk and uh i hadn't gone to university you know i i couldn't just jump back into research so i had to i had to finish my undergrad when i was working at uh, hank caney's full time then after i'd done that i started to do my uh, master's degree and that's what really ignited my interest in, in research and then finished my PhD so the whole process was probably um, gosh it was probably a good 10 years um, from when I decided I, I want to learn how to do this better um, and it it really was driven by I wanted to do better at my job I wanted to do better at building my business and and keeping people um in in the program and and that's that's what took me in that direction and once i started to get exposed to some of the research that was um being done in other fields like education stem um even other sports then i realized there was all of this fantastic research out there that we can use in golf but we but we're not and, you know, just to kind of clarify, I'm talking about, um, you know, the, the social sciences, not the, not the hard sciences, not kind of biomechanics, but the social science. Um, what can we, what, how can we say things better? How can we motivate people? How can we give feedback better? Um, how can we communicate better? How can we create a culture that is going to make people want to stay in golf? And so just kind of went down this rabbit hole and 10 years later came out of it with a phd no that's that 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 is really cool and i think it um it is it is a rabbit hole you can certainly ask just ask a question to trigger a research paper and then you can just build on that so your master's degree was done on the difference in motivations between male and female golfers um what did you find when you when you went down that little pathway (laughs) yeah so um you know from my master's degree onwards then a lot of my research was driven by um trying to solve some of the 
the problems in the golf industry that we've been talking about for decades, but haven't really done much to improve them. So my master's degree was trying to look at why men and women are engaging in golf in different ways, their motivation levels. Um, so what I found in my master's research was that men and women make different attributions for their performance. So what an attribution is, is how we explain the outcome of something. And a, an adaptive, a good attribution is when we make an attribution that suggests that we think we have control over a future action. So in the case of golf, a healthy attribution would be, I played well today because I have been practicing really hard or I played badly today because I didn't prepare well. So whether the outcome is good or bad, then if I'm making an attribution that makes me think that I had some control over the outcome, then that's a good thing. That's a good thing for motivation. So I found that um, male golfers made significantly more controllable um, attributions for their performance than than um, female golfers did. So female golfers were a lot more likely to make attributions like, you know, I played badly today because I'm not very good at golf or I played well today because I was lucky. So, you know, they're explaining their performance by things that they don't feel like they have any control over, which is a bad thing for, for motivation. We want to feel like we have some control over a future action. So uh, that was kind of the takeaways from that part of the research. And, you know, it probably wasn't anything that people wouldn't have, you know, figured out just by being around golf. But, you know, part of this process for me has been um, trying to trying to get data to support assumptions that we make in the in the golf industry yeah and I, I i think that's really important i know as golfers we are traditionally passing on old wives tales from years and years ago so mm -hmm. having that having that quantifiable data is certainly certainly a positive step forwards whether it's in the social sciences or the or the hard sciences of biomechanics yep yep exactly and so then the the findings from that really led me on to what I ended up doing with my PhD, um, which was, you know, why are men and women making such different attributions for how they play? Is it something to do with the culture? Is it something to do with the coaching experience? Is it something to do with their interaction with, with golf coaches? So kind of then my PhD um, fed off of my master's. Yeah, I have, I have heaps of questions there, which probably leads into the next one. So, uh, stereotype threat is something that pops up quite often in your in your publications and your in your research. Can you explain to everyone what stereo what stereotype threat is? Yes, it is absolutely fascinating, particularly um, if you like this kind of stuff. So, uh, the the phrase was was coined by a guy called Claude Steele, um, who's at at Stanford, and he initially looked at why African-Americans were underperforming in, in standardized tests. And to cut a long story short, then he found that when people are reminded of a stereotype that is associated with their identity, then they're more likely to underperform. And they underperform because 
the processes that you start engaging in are, you know, you don't want to conform to that stereotype. So you start kind of over monitoring what you're doing, being very um, conscious of, um, you know, your behavior and that and that kind of thing. So if you bring that to golf, then when women go into a, a golf environment, then they know that there's a stereotype about women golfers. And there just is. I know them. You know them. They are ingrained in our industry. There's stereotypes that, you know, women golfers are bad. They're slow. They can't hit the ball well. So, you know, we're all aware of those stereotypes and women entering golf are aware of those stereotypes. So they are susceptible to experiencing stereotype threat, which means that in the golf environment, because they are aware of the stereotypes that exist about them, then a lot of their work in memory that should be going into their golf performance is instead going into managing um, their their performance and trying not to conform um, to the stereotype about them. And then the end result of that is that they underperform um, because they're not engaging in 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 golf in the same way as they would in an environment that they were um, not experiencing stereotype threats. So, you know, when women come into our golf environment, then as coaches, it's really useful to understand the effects of the environment on on women or, or even minorities come to that um, because the stereotypes around golf that affect people that are targeted by the stereotypes could have real uh impact yeah that's um that's that's important to understand i think it, it can be hard to understand sometimes uh coming personally from a white australian guy's privileged <laughs> position um haven't had any um any exposure to any types of stereotypes basically so um it's certainly hard to get around so i'm going to take one for the team here and i want you to hit me <laughs> hit me between the eyes how bad are we dealing with stereotype threat as coaches um we we are bad but um i'm i'm not gonna blame i'm, I'm not gonna blame <laughs> you Lisa, at all for it. <laughs> and if we kind of go back a little bit in in history then our industry is a little bit to blame for the way that coaches deal with stereotype threat so like i said earlier one of my motivations for going down the research route was to try and either find data to support assumptions or to um or to you know offer a different explanation for doing things and one of the issues that we're up against is that stereotypes are so ingrained in the golf culture that they've almost been mistaken as as truths and so then training material that coaches engage with oftentimes reinforce stereotypes um, that already exist about women golfers so you know then we're at a place where coaches are trying to do the right thing but they've been trained in these various in these very stereotypical ways about what women want when they're in the go- when they're in the golf environment what they're capable of what their motivations are and so then coaches engage with women in even more stereotyping ways which can make the situation worse and just to let you off the hook a little bit <laughs> Brent then um 
what my research has shown is that if the coach is either a man or a woman, then it doesn't make any significant difference in terms of how they stereotype uh, women golfers. So it isn't, you know, a male coach thing. It's a coach's, um, they have, they don't believe that women are as able to improve as male golfers. And then that really manifests itself in the way that they coach and the type of feedback that they give and the culture that they create. No, that's that's cool. Now I'm going to give my little bit of advice, but I want you to do um, either shoot me down or add to it as well. So, um, from a common sense perspective, to me, the first thing that I would be I would be doing as a coach is speaking to those groups and finding out what they actually want. So as opposed to just assuming what they want, mm-hmm. uh, talking to them prior to the coaching sessions and saying, "Okay, guys, what do you actually want? How do you want me to communicate these ideas? What's the best way for me to get this across to you?" Yeah, I think that would be a really good start. Um, You know, one thing that has been found with stereotype threat in terms of trying to reduce it is when teachers or coaches, if, you know, if you were teaching um, a group of women and you said to them, hey, look, I know that there's stereotypes about women golfers, but I just want you to know that I'm your coach. I haven't seen any difference in terms of you know, men and women learning. You're all capable of learning. I think you can improve and it's my job to help you improve and just kind of try and debunk it before you even start the lesson instead of it just kind of sitting there um, like an elephant in the room. Um, And yes, to your point also in that, you know, in golf and, you know, some other areas, then We tend to think of women as being this very homogenous group where all women want this and do this and are are motivated by that. But, you know, all people, we have individual differences between us. And, you know, whether it's me and you or me and a different, um, you know, woman, then we're we're all slightly different and we all have different motivations for for doing things just in the same way as when men take up golf they have different motivations too but we've kind of ended up in this place in golf where women have just been kind of bunched together as this homogenous group that should all be treated the same um and so yes your idea about saying you know what do you want to get out of this why you know do you want to compete do you want to kind of are you here for for social engagements, for fitness, you know, and just trying to understand everyone's individual motivations because um, women aren't a homogenous group. And so, you know, I think it goes a long way to just address some of those things up front. What do you want is probably the best question you can ask a client when you first start coaching them is uh, find out what they actually want. Don't just assume mm-hmm. that they're there for certain things. And um, I was, I'm, I'm, I've been guilty of it as well. So if you can uh, ask that question straight up front, it's a really good, uh, really good question to ask your students. Yep, yep, yeah, I I agree. And you know, one of the other one of the other big misconceptions that you know has come up from the research that I've been doing is that, you know, we, we need to be teaching men and women with good pedagogical practice. So we need to be teaching 
men and women well, but because of these stereotypes that are so ingrained um, in golf, then I think a lot of coaches have a, a belief that you know women need to be coached this way um, compared to men who need to be coached this way. So you know we shouldn't be coaching men and women differently. We should be teaching them all well. Um, the difference is perhaps just that we need to understand that the culture is going to have a different effect on, on men and women. So, you know, when, if you're teaching a bunch of women um, instead of teaching a bunch of men, then you should go about teaching them both the same way from a learning perspective, um, not think that, you know, women need to be taught this way and men need to be taught this way. Yeah, now, I'm going to steal your line here and really stress the point that good coaching is good coaching. doesn't matter who it is in front of you. That's that's absolutely right. So um, what I found with in in my PhD research was that not only did coaches perceive men and women differently in terms of their ability to learn, then that resulted in um, coaches giving men different types of feedback than they they would give to women. So to male golfers, coaches would be more likely to say, all right, Brent, this is what I'm seeing. This is what we're going to improve. And this is how we're going to do it. So it would be like identify the problem and then explain what the problem is and what you're going to be do, what you're going to be doing to, to correct it. With women golfers, then coaches were more likely to give feedback like um, you don't hit the ball as far as you need to. It's okay. Some people just don't hit the ball very far. So, you know, if we think back to those attributions that I talked about earlier, it's no wonder that women golfers gave more uncontrollable attributions because that's kind of the feedback that coaches were more likely to, to give them. So, um, you know, coaches were more likely to kind of pat women on the on the shoulder and say, you know, never mind, you're never going to hit the ball very far. Whereas if they had a male golfer with similar swings, similar um, ball flight characteristics, they would explain to the guy how he should improve. And they didn't do the same thing uh, for, for women golfers. And I do think that that behavior comes not from any bad intention. I think it comes from the fact that as coaches, we've been so, we've had it kind of knocked over our heads that, um, you know, women learn differently or they don't take feedback well, or you've got to be gentle with them instead of just explaining how to improve, which you would in any good learning environment. Yeah, so how ingrained is this stuff? How 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 much of it do you think is is subconscious as opposed to a conscious thing? I think a lot of it is is subconscious and you talked about, you know, some kind of reflective practice earlier and you know, I stop stealing my question, Sue. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, perfect. perfect. I, I was I was keen to do this. I was I was keen to go down because if if you if you aren't conscious of the fact that you're doing this, being able to go back over your coaching and film your coaching and see how you're doing and picking up on these things is is exactly the path I was heading for this question. So you you stole my thunder. Uh, oh, exactly, and um, you know. I I think about this stuff all day, every day. I do the research in it, and I know there are still some days when I have new clients 
new women coming for golf lessons and I'm making assumptions about why they're why they're here what their ability is and so you know it is it it isn't unusual that you know we all have this bias I mean it's it's in some ways part of human nature because we reflect uh the culture that we that we live in but being aware of it being engaging in some kind of reflective practice is a great start to to mitigate it yeah, you you can't fix things that you if you aren't aware that you're actually doing them. So becoming aware is obviously the first step towards correcting it. Abs- absolutely, yeah, that that is so true. And so, you know, this topic, as you well know, is uh, not necessarily an an easy topic to to talk about. It's it it brings up conversations that people don't like like having but it's these tough conversations that we need to be having in golf so that you know we can start addressing them you know if we don't talk about some of the biases that we have as coaches the the stereotypes that we have the stereotype threat um if we really want to change the face of golf then these are the conversations that we need to be having as difficult as they are no, that's that's great. Now, leading onto that would be your research into the co- coach athlete relationship. So, obviously, it's important to have that connection between mm-hmm. between athlete and coach. Um, and you you talk about the three C's of the coach athlete relationship. Can you explain what the three C's are? Um, <laughs> no, because that's not my research. Um, so that is Sophia Jowett's research. Um, so I use it a lot to frame research, but that that stuff isn't isn't my research. So um, oh, sorry about that. I, I that's should right. Your research that's right. As well. I, would, I would love to take credit for it, but it, 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 but I can't. <laughs> but um, obviously, it's it's just, just, it is still important to create that that connection between athlete and coach. How do you use those three C's in in your own coaching? Yeah. So um, the thing that I think is really interesting about the coach-athlete relationship research is that like many things in golf then it's that research has had has gained a lot of traction in high performance coaching and my business is really at grassroots golf recreational uh, golf and the coach-athlete relationship for recreational athletes is you know athletes rank it really low so it's almost like when we're coaching high performance players we know that the relationship between coach and athlete is really important Um, when we coach recreational players then it's almost like that bit switches off whether it's because we don't value um, recreational golfers as much or whether we see it more of a transactional relationship but um, we don't we we don't invest as much time in building that relationship with players at a recreational level and that gets reflected back in how uh, recreational athletes report their experience with with coaches so um, in terms of what go- golf coaches can take away from this from this work is technology has made it really, really easy for us to stay connected to people that we we teach, whether it's apps like 
coach now or any other just kind of two-way communication apps then we can stay in touch with people we can send the messages we can um you know send you know these mass um kind of tips to to people just to stay connected to them so that they stay on our radar um it's coaches realizing that even though they are golf experts then we're not really in that business for most of the people we teach we're we're in a people business and that's you know you asked at the start of this then how how does how do my um playing on tour how does that influence my coaching and and I said what well, today it really doesn't very much and that's because you know I I almost see myself more as a um trying to build community of golfers um and help people make golf a really central part of their life and support system and so you know just kind of reflecting and realizing that what we do on a day-to-day basis is feeling um is fulfilling a, a social need that people have a sense of community that people have and you know that relationship that we have with grassroots golfers is just as important than it is for when we coach high performance golfers so how does that tie in i've heard you speak before about growth minded coaching how does mm-hmm. that tie into that and so that, that's obviously something that you 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 hold pretty close to your your own coaching so how does how does growth minded coaching work yeah so if we think back to one of the um earlier questions that you asked about um, stereotype threat, then um, I said, you know, one strategy that you can use to overcome that is to talk about the elephant in the room. Another strategy that you can use to overcome it is by developing a growth-minded coaching culture. Um, And what that is, is creating a culture that is a culture of learning instead of a culture of if for want of a better word, natural talent. So many people I'm sure would have heard of uh, Carol Dweck and her work on mindset. And so she initially started researching why kids responded um, either well or or badly to difficult tasks, why some kids gave up and others were um, persistent. So she came up with a theory that growth-minded children, children who believe that intelligence is something that can be developed, um, they saw difficult tasks as a way to improve their intelligence. And on the other end of the spectrum, kids with more of a fixed mindset who saw intelligence as something that you either have or you, you don't have, then when they were given a difficult task and they couldn't do it, they just quit because it's like, well, intelligence is is fixed. I can't do anything to improve mine. I can't do this task. So what's the point in investing any more time in it? So her work has evolved from kind of that point 40 years ago or so, where now then research is being done on our mindsets, not about our own ability, but the ability of others, which is some of the work that I've done with coaches, um, but also a, a cultural mindset. So do you create an environment where everyone feels that golf ability is something that they can learn? Or do you create an environment that gets people to think that golf ability is something innate innate, and is natural and is gifted? And if I don't have it when I arrive, then I'm never going to get it. And what we know about creating a growth-minded coaching culture is that it's one of the 
key tools that you can use to um, to try and reduce stereotype threat. So if I come to golf and I'm a new um, a new golfer, I'm I'm a woman. I want to learn, and I know all these stereotypes that exist about women golfers. If I go into a coaching environment where the coach talks a lot about um, golf ability is something that can be developed and this is how you're going to develop develop it and this is what learning is going to look like and this is what learning looks like for everyone and I'm going to help you improve then that growth-minded coaching culture is going to reduce the stereotype threat and increase that woman's motivation to persist. Now if she instead goes into a coaching culture where the coach talks a lot about you know natural ability and um, uh, talent and um, watch me hit a ball 250 yards then it just kind of reinforces the idea that golf ability is something that you either haven't got or you have and at that point she's probably going to feel like she doesn't and she's in an environment that is just reinforcing that then stereotype threat is going to really kick in and she's going to be out of there and probably won't come back again so the the growth-minded coaching culture is really important to create, particularly for new golfers, but for all golfers, because it creates a space where people are okay with struggling, failing, having difficulties learning, because that's the reality of what learning looks like. And it's those cultures that are going to really um, help us change what the golfing uh, community looks like because we're going to create spaces where um, we reduce stereotype threat and people see golf as something that can be learned instead of something that they can either do or can't do. Now, I I like that a lot. And I think if you're going to take one thing away from this podcast, it's to try and build that type of culture into your own coaching. That That is really powerful. And I think um, it's an easy habit to fall into when you, you get certain players on your coaching team and you, you have that preconceived ideas of how, how far they can improve and how much they can get better. So um, building that culture, I think, is a really powerful takeaway. So is there any sort of reading out there that you can suggest that people might go and find? Yes, there's some great books. Um, Carol Dweck's book is called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. Um, she, In that book, she compiles research that she's been doing over the last 20, 30, 40 years and makes it into a very readable form. So it's not written in an academic style that is going to send you to sleep. It's really accessible. Um, and there's segments in there that talk about sport. There's segments in there that talk about things other than sport, but it's all kind of conveying the same message and it's all really useful. So that's a great book. Um, there's another book called Bounce, B-O-U-N-C-E, by Matthew Said, who was a British table tennis uh, player. And he... He's a journalist and he's taken a lot of this research, Dweck's work um, and some other um, research and kind of condensed it and made it about sport where, you know, he talks about his own I experience of um, how he succeeded in, in table tennis. Um, so that's another fantastic book, too.
I will um, I will search those up and I'll put some links in the description of that one so that people can find those books out there. So um, I could talk to you for hours, Sue, but we're, we're getting close to the end. We're, um, I've kept you long enough, but we have uh, a series of questions that everyone gets asked at the end of this podcast. So we have a bit of a fast four. So I thought we'll we'll spend the last ten or fifteen going through those those questions if you don't mind. Oh no, so, I try not to choke on them. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, so the first the, the first question of the fast four is advice for people starting out in coaching. So someone who's just either just uh, graduated or just starting out in their coaching field. What advice would you have for someone like that? I, I would tell them to go and watch as many different coaches as they can um the great thing about technology you can you can watch youtube you can um see what other people are doing you can start trying to figure out um you know your own coaching approach so watching other people reading um and just try and get as much knowledge as 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 possible um that's how you're going to get ahead as a coach Seems to be a common theme that seems to be popping up quite often when I ask that question is shadowing coaches if if you get that chance and I think mm-hmm. um, and as you said it's really easy to access people's information these days because really uh, the, the high profile coaches are putting it out there online and you can certainly get a bit of a sense for what they're doing um, out there so no, that's um, certainly great advice so advice for golfers so someone starting out or golfers already playing out there what advice do you, do you have for the golfers out there? Yes. Um, I did a, an article for Golf Digest a few years ago. Um, I, I can't remember what it was called. It's something like taking golf lessons is great, but are you doing them wrong? Um, and it is using the same mindset concept in that as coaches, then what we would really benefit from is if golfers came to us with more of a growth mindset about what golf ability is. So um, instead of beating yourself up when you hit a bad shot or thinking about a bad shot or a bad round or a bad tournament or a bad season as some kind of judgment on the kind of golfer you can be, you know, trying to reframe golf ability as something that can develop and improve with really strategic, um, a really strategic approach. So trying to get away from kind of I'm not a I'm not an athlete I'm not a golfer which kind of puts puts them in that fixed mindset um place and then it's really difficult to coach them it's really difficult for them to make mistakes because they react so badly from them so trying to frame golf ability in more of a, a growth mindset way and um see it as something that can develop and and learn no, that, that's great advice. Now, your career has been been pretty impressive, pretty uh, awesome experience you've had from playing for England as an amateur and all the way through to um, to where you are now. So, was there anything that you would change? Anything? Any different steps that you would take throughout your career, or was is everything kind of good how it is? <laughs> Honestly, without making this turn into a in, turn into a therapy session, um, then. I think that, you know, as researchers, and I don't know whether you're going to end up doing this, Brent, but as researchers, we tend to research things that interest us, but also we have some kind of personal stake in. Um, and I know that as a player, then I was 
that absolute fixed mindset player. So I had grown up as a child prodigy and, you know, had a great amateur career. And I had people, you know, telling me how talented I was, um, you know, what great ability I had. Um, and I never attributed it to the fact that I used to work really hard. And so, you know, I had a very fixed mindset about what ability um, is. And so then when I did turn pro and didn't do as well as people had expected, then I saw that as um, an indication that maybe I wasn't as talented as people had said I was. So if I could do things differently, I think probably I would um, have had, you know, searched out other people or help or somehow created an environment where I didn't see my success as uh, an indication that I was naturally talented. I would try and frame it as I was successful because I had worked hard and, and happened to have a good instructor. Well, I think, and it's important for coaches to understand this as well as players, that you only know what you know back in the, at, at that time. So mm-hmm. you can't you can't seek out information if you aren't aware that it's there. So no. yeah. try not to be too hard on yourself, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but then on the flip side of that, then, you know, when I look back now, then I'm really happy with how, um, you know, my career has taken shape. I, I really enjoy what I do and and the question is whether I would be where I am um you know well none of us would be where where we are if things had gone in in a different way but you know basically everything kind of worked out great and uh, as a result of making mistakes early in my career then I I'm enjoying the place that it ended up bringing me yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So the final question is, where do you see yourself or your coaching field in the next five years? So that could, you can answer either. You can answer both. You can answer in any way you like. Oh, that's a good question. Um, where would I like to see myself in five years? Well, I think probably where I would like to see things going is that um, the research that I'm doing is starting to have um, a systemic impact um i would like it to go you know i would like to go more in in that direction right now because i'm in in madison wisconsin then in the summers then i'm probably teaching 90 percent of my time and doing research 10 percent of the time in the winters it's pretty much 50 50 split because we have snow on the ground but in five years i think all year round i would like to do practical coaching five years i mean 50 percent of the time and then uh, research 50% of the time and, and try and bring some of the research that I'm doing um, to life so that we can kind of change a, a little bit more the culture of, of golf coaching. That would be my, my dream. So where do you see your research going in the next five years? What what path do you see yourself taking? Yeah, so um, with Australia, I did um, a study on on the culture of, of or golfers experience um, in in golf and then looking at things that we can do within the culture that could um, have an impact on the golfing experience and so I would like to do more of more of that stuff um, you know in golf we talk a lot, a lot about now making golf welcoming making it um, a place where people want to be I think what we're missing is you know what does welcoming mean um, 
you know, it's a slightly nebulous term where, you know, it might be might might mean something different to me than to you as kind of operators in golf. Um, and what research can do can it can help us put meat on the bones of of those kind of terms so that we can start to understand what are the key features in the golf environment that are going to increase the chances of people feeling that golf is a place for them. So, you know, I would like to continue to do research and try and kind of really bridge that gap between, you know, what we can measure in the environment and what does that mean to golf pros who, you know, are running their facilities and, and want to make their golf facility a place that more women want to go there, more minorities want to go there, then, you know, try and give them the tools that is coming from research to help them do that. No, that's that's great. That's great. So um, thank you so much for your time today, Sue. I really appreciate you coming in and, and talking to me, taking time out of your busy schedule to come and chat to me. So where can people find you if they're after more information about you or about your research? Um, let people know where they can find you. Yeah, so my coaching business is Change Golf Instruction, uh, changegolfinstruction.com. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is at changegolfers. Um, and the research arm of my business is uh, Sports Query. Um, and so I'd welcome any questions that people have, how they might be able to take some of my research, put it into practice. Anyone who's eager to to learn about this stuff, then I would I would love to hear from you. So maybe Brent, you could put a couple of links into things, and um, if people want to find me, then they can. Yeah, I will I will put those out there in the description of the episode. And um, yeah, I think I've covered just about everything, Sue. But I think uh, at some stage, once you do a bit more research, we might get you back again to expand a bit further. So um, thank you again so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I had a great conversation again. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. And uh, I'm loving the podcast, so keep it going. I will certainly keep it going. So everyone out there listening, uh, subscribe, please. Uh, check the downloads and uh, we will catch up with you all soon. Mm-hmm.